The title of this evening's talk <coughs> is Equanimity. Here in Taos, we have uh, what is considered to be a sacred mountain. It's one of amongst many mountains as that we're surrounded by here in the Taos Valley and up here in the mountains. This sacred mountain is actually within the Pueblo, the village of the Tiwa Indians that sits on the north end of the town of Taos. And this particular uh, mountain is sacred to the Tiwa people. And it's also a sacred symbol for many Taosenos. I have the good fortune to be able to look out at it and to uh, take it in in every season, any time of the day, any time of the night, on any day of the year, if the uh, air is clear, as it's very visible from where I live. This mountain, any mountain, simply sits where it is. The sun shines on it, rain and hail fall on it, storms cover it, lightning strikes it, fires sometimes rage on it. All sorts of life forms are born and die on it, living out there particular life patterns on and with the mountain. And the mountain remains unshakable, unwavering. The mountain of radical acceptance, the mountain of impartiality, the mountain of equanimity. The mountain itself is alive energy, a lively energy. But it only exists in relationship to all of the myriad, lively, constantly changing energies that constitute it. The mountain appropriately sustains and supports the activity that it's intricately and intimately connected to, connected with. The mountain of equanimity doesn't cling on. It isn't attached and it isn't averse to anything. We might say that it lets life live through it, closing off to nothing, holding on to nothing. And all of this happens with the amazing grace of impartiality and balance. And so we begin our exploration of upekka, equanimity. Equanimity is a powerful force in our practice and a powerful force in the whole of our life. In the Buddhist teachings, it's included as one of the ten paramis, one of the ten perfections. It's one of the four brahma-viharas, one of the four divine abidings, metta, karuna, mudita, and upekka, equanimity. And it's one of the seven factors of enlightenment, mindfulness, investigation of states, effort, energy, joy, tranquility, concentration, and equanimity. It's also one of the two jhana factors that are present in the fourth jhana, ikagata, one-pointedness, and equanimity. And upekka was the final factor to come into maturity before the Buddha attained full awakening, before the Buddha attained full enlightenment. As this about-to-be Buddha sat under the Bodhi tree that now 
famous night. With an evenness and balance in his relaxed and powerful presence, as though he were an immovable mountain. As he sat there with the amazing grace of impartiality and balance, seeing things clearly and relinquishing, letting go, relinquishing every attachment to all formations of body and mind, and then breaking through to the great awakening, breaking through to the complete ending of suffering. Equanimity is the fearlessness, the power, and the equilibrium of the mind, the heart, to experience all kinds of change. The fearlessness, the power, and the balance of heart and mind to experience every sort of manifestation and change in the realms of internal and external formations and in the realm of feeling, the pleasant, unpleasant uh, feelings that are associated with the arising, passing of all mental and physical phenomena and all internal, all external phenomena as well. The Buddha described what he called six-limbed equanimity, meaning equanimity in relationship to what comes in at each of the six sense doors. Seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, and the mind door. This six-limbed equanimity was described as the equanimity of one whose afflictive states, or cankers, as the Buddha often called them, have been destroyed. Destroyed temporarily or destroyed completely. Destroyed finally, as occurs in the final completion of Vipassana practice. And this being abides in the natural state of purity in relationship to desirable or undesirable objects that come into focus at any of the six sense doors. And some words from the Buddha. Here a bhikkhu, a yogi, a meditator, whose cankers are destroyed is neither overjoyed nor distraught on seeing a visible object with the eye, hearing an audible sound with the ear, smelling, tasting, touching, thinking. She, he, dwells in equanimity, mindful and fully aware. Equanimity is the fearlessness great strength and ease of the mind, the heart, to remain centered and unmoved in the midst of it all. The literal translation of upekka is on-looking. Equanimity looks on at the occurrence of physical and mental pleasure and pain by maintaining a neutral mode, by staying in the middle, staying in the center, watching things as they arise and pass. On looking, it it sees them fairly without favoritism, without bias, without partiality. So one attribute of equanimity itself, as it's described in the realm of feeling is as neither painful nor pleasant feeling. We could say that equanimity is the equipoise, the balance or equilibrium between the opposing forces in the mind of the desired and the undesired. This 
equipoise of equanimity offsets the weightiness of greed and the weightiness of aversion. It's that point of balance in the middle of the seesaw of life. The mind, the heart, doesn't move towards, nor does it move away. I remember as a child that I loved to find that point of balance when I was playing on the seesaw or the teeter-totter, as we called it, with another child. Both of us would be suspended in our teeter-totter seat, suspended perfectly balanced in the air, in midair. And there was always a certain kind of happy and almost a breathtaking feeling inside, uh, inside me uh, at the moments when this would occur. It didn't last very long, though. Uh, T.S. Eliot, the poet T.S. Eliot, said this beautifully. At the still point of the turning world, neither flesh nor fleshless, neither from nor towards, At the still point, there the dance is. But neither arrest nor movement, and do not call it fixity, where past and future are gathered, neither movement from nor towards, neither ascent nor decline. Except for the point, the still point, there would be no dance, and there is only the dance. This still point of equanimity is a place of protection, while at the same time being an experience of great spaciousness and strength of mind, strength of heart. The Buddha used the metaphor of putting a a spoonful of salt in a cup of water. Because of the small container, the water will be quite, uh, quite salty, quite harsh, and undrinkable. On the other hand, if we put uh, a spoonful of salt into a large body of water, the size of the Rio Grande River, which is the largest river here in New Mexico, it won't have the same effect. Because of the enormous amount of water because of the great spaciousness or the great wateriness that the salt is put into. And I think as each of us know, life is quite salty at times. It's just how it is at times. One aspect of the development of equanimity is about creating the spaciousness of mind and heart which we can meet with which we can meet and look on at life's everyday experiences as well as the subtleties of internal and external phenomena that we come to sense, see and know through our practice to look on with balance, (coughs) with equipoise, with what's sometimes called the heart of greatness. And what's called in the suttas in relationship to equanimity as a factor of enlightenment, to look on with specific neutrality. So, What does this mean, specific neutrality? It means that whatever states of consciousness are present, including at times maybe the uh, other three divine abidings, metta, karuna, mudita, the other six enlightenment factors, mindfulness, investigation, energy, joy, tranquility, and concentration, 
as well as the arising of various other wholesome mental states, such as patience and faith, that they're all met, all met, experienced and seen, looked on at evenly through the mind of equanimity. The function of equanimity is to inhibit partiality. And so upekka manifests as neutrality. There's a wonderful uh, little book of teachings from Zen Master Dogen with commentary by Uchiyama Roshi called How to Cook Your Life, where Dogen uses the work of the monastery cook, the Tenzo in this book is called, and our relationship to food to teach us. And in this case, to teach us about equanimity. And we, of course, can um, bring this teaching immediately close, right here and now, in relationship to our cooks and the food here in this retreat. Our amazing Amy Tenzo and our amazing Chris Tenzo. And also bring this teaching into our life when we're back home. And this is from Dogen. Handle even a single leaf of a green in such a way that it manifests the body of the Buddha. This in turn allows the Buddha to manifest through the leaf. This is a power you cannot grasp with your rational mind. It operates freely according to the situation in a most natural way. At the same time, this power functions in our lives to clarify and settle activities and is beneficial to all living beings. And he goes on. A dish is not necessarily superior because you've prepared it with choice ingredients, nor is a soup inferior because you've made it with ordinary greens. When handling and selecting greens, do so wholeheartedly with a pure mind and without trying to evaluate their quality in the same way in which you would prepare a splendid feast. And he goes on. In practicing the Dhamma or the Dharma, he says, a delicious and ordinary tastes are the same and not two. There's an old saying, the mouth of a monk or the mouth of a yogi is like an oven. And he says, just as an oven burns both sandalwood for incense and cow dung uh, for cooking, and of course during Dogen's time there was no natural gas or no propane or no electricity, so... um, so just as an oven burns both sandalwood and incense for, uh, incense for incense and cow dung for cooking, without distinction, our mouth should be the same. There should be no distinction between delicious food and food which is plain and simple. We should be satisfied with whatever we receive. So, how does one look on at the mind with equanimity? What contributes to this looking on in this way? What contributes to this capacity of relating to all things with equanimity? So, a very simple example in relationship to our practice. We sit and we find that the mind is tranquil, serene. And this is known. And we recognize that the focusing power of the mind, the concentration, is evenly and repeatedly connecting with whatever the object of attention is. The mind isn't listless, it's not agitated. Mindfulness is present. The mind is interested and appropriately energized. 
at those times there isn't any interest in or necessity for exerting or restraining or encouraging the mind in any way. In our practice, just simply and clearly recognizing, noting, and knowing without attachment that this is what's occurring, that these factors of mind are in place for a briefer, maybe for a longer period of time, is actually something that contributes to the blossoming of the state, the blossoming of the factor of equanimity thus contributing to our capacity to relate to all things, to relate to all phenomena with equipoise and composure. During the time and the culture of the Buddha, his metaphor for the mind when it's in this mode was this. One is like a charioteer who looks with equanimity on horses, progressing evenly. Well, it's probably not the case for most of us. <laughs> I think more likely in, in, our, uh, in our case, the metaphor might be one is like the driver of a car who looks on with equanimity in a car that's running along evenly when it's set on cruise control. <laughs> and we're able to see and to know to take in what's in front of us, and what's passing by with ease. Take it in with ease. This quality, this factor of mind, allows the process of practice, the development of the progress of insight uh, and concentration to unfold without getting caught without getting mired by the habits of mind that can uh, sometimes quite easily stop things up, such as the very uh, various habits of clinging and attachment and identification that can create a block, that can re- create a tangle in the flow of the process. Within the ambiance of equanimity, even the subtlety of the habits of attachment, identification, aversion, and the comparing mind can be seen, known, and let go of, allowing understanding and concentration to blossom and to deepen and to eventually mature. As we practice, we begin to taste equanimity along with the arising of various other wholesome mental states such as patience and confidence and metta. And as each of you know, until equanimity is truly matured, we can lose and regain our balance over and over and over again. Quite a number of years ago, for the whole of the last two weeks of a long retreat that I was sitting, I practiced uh, equanimity. I practiced it in the way that it's uh, practiced as a Brahma-vihara, as one of the sublime abidings, by silently repeating one equanimity phrase over and over and over again uh, during that whole time, that, those whole two weeks, first directing it to myself and then on through all the same categories that are used for metta practice. And this is the phrase that I used. I am the heir of my kama meaning the heir of all of my deeds, uh, actions of uh, mind, speech, and body. My happiness and suffering depends upon my actions, not upon my wishes for myself. 
Well, by the end of those two weeks of uh, a pretty diligent practice, there was quite a, a deep and quiet sense of balance occurring, a sense of evenness and Uh, neutrality in the mind and heart. A day or two before the uh, very end of the retreat, the thought came up, well, there's equanimity here. Seems to be a fairly deep and abiding equanimity. (laughs) And then the next thought was, well, I wonder if there's an equanimity test. If if this was a Zen retreat, if this was a Sashin, any good Zen teacher would do something creatively startling to check my equanimity. But this is a Vipassana retreat, and Vipassana teachers just don't do things like that. So then the thought just disappeared. Well, later that day, I was startled uh, in a true Vipassana fashion, an equanimity test Vipassana style. I got a note that was signed by my equanimity teachers, though actually the note was from all five of the teachers who were uh, teaching that retreat. And it said, we would like you to give the Adana talk to the yogis tomorrow. Well, at that point I was not teaching Dhamma. I had not taught Dhamma. but I was being asked to do this. Well, for a moment or two, or maybe a few, <laughs> equanimity flew right out the window, and my heart felt like it just stopped. The old habit of fear flew right in, in my body, my mind, and my heart, and the thought came up, I can't, I cannot do this. And my old, my old habit just kicked right in. I've been silent for so many weeks, so deeply into practice. I can't get up in front of my fellow yogis and speak. It's completely impossible. And then the heart and the mind relaxed and saw very clearly what had occurred. And the thought came in, ah, yeah, this is my equanimity test. And of course... I can do it. I want to do it. And at that moment, there was a tremendous flood of gratitude that came into the mind and the heart. Gratitude for the teachers and for the retreat center staff and for the teachings, for the practice. And just as suddenly as equanimity had left, equanimity was back. What I was being asked to do felt like the most natural thing in the world to do. Until Upeka has matured, we lose and regain the balance and the equipoise of equanimity over and over again. Upeka manifests as quieting fear, boredom, dislike, resentment, and the self-judgment that can manifest as guilt and disapproval of not and not being good enough. It also manifests as quieting liking and pride and attachment and the judgment of approval in relationship to what we think of as ourself, as me, as my experiences. Equanimity also manifests as quieting the attachment and the fear that comes up in relationship to others. Along the way of our practice, when equanimity has arisen and is developing, in those moments, fear and resentment, attachment, identification, and the judgments of approval and disapproval subside. Within the clear space of a momentary or longer really true neutrality, there's nothing for greed and nothing for aversion to stick to when they start to arise. Equanimity fails when it produces what's called the equanimity of unknowing, which the Buddha called 
worldly-minded indifference produced by ignorance. So what does this mean, worldly-minded indifference? It occurs when we don't clearly see or clearly see through the object of our attention with the focused attention of mindfulness and investigation rooted in kind-heartedness. And instead, we're blindly seduced by and swept away in the happenings of life within our practice and also outside of practice, seemingly, seemingly equanimous with it all. This is not upekka. It's what the Buddha called indifference based in or produced by ignorance. And some words from the Buddha regarding this. On seeing a visible object with the eye or in relationship to contact through any of the six sense doors, equanimity arises in the foolish, infatuated, ordinary man or woman in the untaught ordinary woman or man who hasn't seen or conquered his or her limitations, who hasn't understood or conquered future results, meaning kama, who is unperceiving of danger in relationship to attachment, in relationship to aversion. Such equanimity doesn't see through the visible object. Such so-called Equanimity is actually worldly-minded indifference based in ignorance. (coughs) The Buddha was quite wonderfully direct and straightforward and very succinct in his uh, teaching. So a brief uh, personal story... Um, When I first began living in Taos, um, uh, I noticed uh, that there were uh, many, many beautiful handcrafted things in store windows. And at times, um, there was quite an infatuated uh, 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 mind with what I was seeing, sometimes getting quite caught in the delusion of needing what I was seeing that very painful contraction of the must-have mind. I'm sure we've all experienced that at times. Um, Over time, uh, I did a practice, I decided to do a practice of walking along and looking into the shop windows and watching the process of my mind and heart. And I did this many times, uh, purposefully. And eventually, uh, just began to be able to appreciate the beauty of what I was seeing with appreciation for the amazing uh, creative capacities of the the human beings who made all of the objects that I was viewing. It took quite a while, though, to get to that point. The Dalai Lama tells a story about being taken to a particular area in London Uh, by a friend, um, uh, uh, and they walked along uh, passing various shops in this area that uh, sell all kinds of tiny mechanical parts, which uh, some of you may know is of a particular interest and kind of fascination of the Dalai Lamas. And he says that he found himself um, having some very strong inner feelings of wanting them all totally not equanimous, like I was not totally at all equanimous looking in the windows, shop windows and towels. And he said at one point, as he was walking along and feeling this wanting, he said he realized that he didn't even know what any of them were for. I'm sure that every one of us have experienced the pretense of equanimity within ourselves in the midst of greed or dislike or boredom or resentment, anger, fear, maybe in the midst of disappointment, a kind of glossing over 
the ignorance, ignoring these states and pretending to ourselves, the pretense of equanimity, this attitude of, well, it doesn't really matter, or "Ah, it's really just fine, or, I mean, I'm totally okay, you know, everything's great. Accompanied, though, maybe by a slight or maybe not so slight moving away from a slight contraction or an inner sense that's not really being noticed of grasping, not being aware of these uh, moving away from the contraction and the inner sense of uh, grasping. And this, of course, is not equanimity. It's actually indifference, which is the called the near enemy of equanimity. Indifference, masquerading, we could say, as upeka. And of course, we all know um, from our own experience that when we're inflamed with greed and and dislike and fear and grief or resentment, it's extremely difficult or maybe just isn't even possible in those moments to look on at those experiences, those moments, uh, with a true equanimity. Upeka is based on an attentive, clear presence of mind, not on dullness and indifference. It's not a kind of casual passing mood, and it's not produced by exertion. It's the result, it's one of the fruits of our practice. The fruit of training the mind, training the heart, through the development and the blossoming of the factors of mindfulness, concentration, balanced effort and energy, joy, tranquility, metta, compassion, and investigation. A true equanimity is able to meet all of the vicissitudes of life, these flip-flops that we encounter in our mind in relationship to what are called the eight worldly winds. Praise and blame, gain and loss, pleasure and pain, fame or distinction and disrepute or disrespect or disregard. These eight worldly winds, as they're sometimes called, that come our way throughout our life. True equanimity is able to meet all of these, what sometimes feel like harsh tests, and is quickly able to regenerate its strength from our inner resources. The resources that in fact have been developed through our diligent practice. And from the Buddha, from the Sutta Nipata, develop the mind of equilibrium. It will always, you will always be getting states, excuse me, you will always be getting praise and blame, (coughs) but do not let either affect the poise of the mind. Follow the calmness follow the absence of pride. There's an amazing uh, practice uh, I've been told was and maybe still is occasionally practiced by the Hopi Indians. I don't recommend this practice, but we can take it as a metaphor uh, for us in relationship to the cultivation and manifestation of the power of fearlessness, evenness of mind and heart, and the protection that is one of the great strengths of equanimity. And this is uh, from the Book of the Hopi by Frank Waters. And this is the practice. There were all kinds of snakes. Rattlesnakes, big bull snakes, racers, sidewinders, gopher snakes, about 60 all tangled on the floor. The singing stirred them. They moved in one direction, then another, looking over all the men in the circle. 
the men never moved. They just kept singing with a kind expression on their faces. The snakes began to roll in the sand, taking their bath. Then a big yellow rattler moved slowly towards an old man, singing with his eyes closed, climbed up on his crossed leg, coiled in front of his breechcloth, and went to sleep. Pretty soon, this old man had five or six snakes crawling over his body, raising their heads to look at his closed eyes and peaceful face then going to sleep. It showed that they had found their friend looking within the heart of this one upon whose body they chose to rest. That is the way snakes show who are good and kind men with pure hearts. True equanimity will possess the power of protection and a wholesome resistance in relationship to the mind, the heart, getting seduced by and caught, caught up in states of fear, greed, and aversion. And will also uh, possess the power of renewing itself. Only if it's rooted in a growing insight into the true nature of things. There are two particular understandings uh, that I'd like to spend a little bit of time exploring with you this evening, in that as they develop along the way of our practice and eventually ripen into insight, ripen into understanding, these are the root of equanimity. And the first of these is our growing clarity in understanding how the vicissitudes, the ups and downs, the eight worldly winds in life, how they originate, how they come to be. And this is the understanding of kama. In Pali, the word is kama, and in Sanskrit, the word is karma. The understanding that the various experiences of stress, of suffering, and the, and the experience of ease are the result of our kama, the result of our actions, our actions of thought, speech, and deed, right here and now in this lifetime, and on back and back and back. This is kama. This is our kama. We could say we're born, we spring out of the womb of kama. And even though we may or may not like it at times, we are undeniably the heirs of our kama. So, for instance, just as soon as we've spoken words or performed an action, we've actually totally lost control over it. And yet, in some ways, it remains with us. And in some ways, inevitably returns to us as our do inheritance. We could say that everything that happens and the ease or dis-ease in our mind, in our heart, is the outcome of our own mind's relationship to all of the happenings in life internally and externally. In other words, our suffering and our happiness in this life in any given moment is due to our own mind. Our motivations and our responses or reactions to phenomena. Not due to our hopes and wishes for ourselves, And not due to some other person or some outer, antagonistic, or seemingly strange or foreign world. As this understanding takes root in us, it actually has the power to free us from fear. And so it's one of the roots of equanimity. When we begin to see 
that we really only meet ourselves. We really only meet our own mind in relationship to everything that happens around us and within us. Within us. What is there to fear? This is then an opportunity, an opening for the heart, the mind, to begin to relax. And we begin to know that we can change our mind. That in fact we're not trapped on the karmic wheel, running around and around like a little mouse. But of course, as we've all experienced, fear, uncertainty, and insecurity arise along the way. And at the same time, as we traverse this path, we clearly begin to see and to know that the refuge where fear can be dispelled is through our good deeds. Refuge from this particular perspective is in wholesome thought, wholesome motivation, wholesome words, and performing wholesome actions. As we take this refuge, there really comes to be a growing confidence in the great protecting power of the good deeds that we've done in the past, and a growing courage to perform more wholesome deeds right now even in the midst of what might seem to be some hardship in our current life. Our practice, this incredible training of the mind and heart, is a very good deed. Really the best, the very best deed. And the essential ground for the blossoming of wholesomeness in through all aspects of our life. As we engage in this refuge, we gain the great strength of the evenness, balance, and patience of the heart of equanimity in relationship to the various challenges and difficulties in our practice and in our life as a whole. Along the way of our practice with the development and the blossoming of relative equanimity, we find that we have the strength to endure when we need to endure and to see clearly that that's what's called for. We have the possibility of not continually to blind, blindly falling into the same holes over and over and over again, but in fact to begin to walk down a different street. The understanding of kama can imbue us with a very powerful motivation to free ourselves from kama, to free ourselves from the actions that again and again throw us into repeated suffering. As we more and more see our own craving and delusion and our habitual tendencies to create and engage in situations that strain (coughs) and sap our strength and sap our healthy resistance, a wholesome disgust as the Buddha calls it, a wholesome disgust uh, arises. And our motivation to practice in order to free ourselves from craving and delusion is strengthened. (coughs) The fruit of deliverance, of a deep and clear experience and understanding of equanimity, is the escape from greed, the escape from tanha in Pali, the escape from insatiable thirst, as it's sometimes translated as. So the first understanding that's the basis of equanimity 
is a growing understanding of kama. And we'll be exploring a kama in more depth in an upcoming uh, Dhamma talk. <coughs> the second insight that equanimity is based on is the teaching and the understanding of anatta, not self. From this perspective, there's no one, there's no self performing any deeds, nor do the results affect any self. The fact is, the truth is, that it's the delusion, the wrong view of a separate, solid self, a separate me, that creates suffering and disturbs equanimity. So, for instance, if we claim ownership, claim ownership, meaning this is mine, this is me, this is who I am, the vicissitudes of life will always throw us into the realm of suffering. So, an example, for instance, if, uh, if this or that aspect of our personality some particular quality of ours is criticized, is blamed, one thinks I'm blamed and equanimity is shaken. When we receive approval or praise for something that we've done, one might think, well, I've been praised, I'm a success. And again, equanimity is disturbed. If this or that work uh, we've done doesn't succeed or isn't praised in the way that we want it to be, one might think, well, my work has failed, I have failed. And again, equanimity is shaken. If wealth or a loved one's lost, one might think, what's mine is gone. And equanimity is again shaken. The unwavering mountain of equanimity is always shaken in the delusion with the identification of me, mine, I am. As understanding deepens and the heart opens, there's an easing of the constrictive feelings and thoughts based in self-centeredness. Unshakable equanimity is established by giving up, by relinquishing all possessive thoughts, the thoughts of mind, with uh, that thought itself maybe being quite a daunting thought. And so we begin with the small things from which it's easy to detach oneself and gradually working up to the possessions, the goals, and the identifications that we so tenaciously cling to. The first time that I taught at the Forest Refuge, uh, uh, part of the Insight Meditation Society in Massachusetts, was for two months. I was the first visiting teacher there. And I was there long enough, these two months, to really settle in. And yet again and again, there was the awareness that the house that I was staying in wasn't mine. And it came about in small, simple, and sometimes uh, quite surprising ways. When I first got there, there was no telephone in the house. So I lobbied for a phone, which in moments felt like it was very much for me. And there was quite a degree of tension, uh, of stress in this. But in truth, the phone uh, was for the many, many others who would be using that house over many, many years. At one point, I was uh, told that it was okay. It was okayed that a phone would be put into the house, but when that would happen at that point was not known. So at that point there was a very quick letting go and no more thoughts about it. And I relaxed and I really truly felt that it just didn't matter if the phone arrived while I was staying in the house or not. Because it wasn't for me. It wasn't mine. And a little during that same two-month period, it was decided to purchase. They were still furnishing 
kind of putting together the place. So it was decided to furnish or a, a purchase a rug uh, for the house, for the room, for the living room. Jeannie, the housekeeper, brought the rug catalog over for the two of us to decide which rug to order. Well, it clearly was not a rug for me. It wasn't for my house. We were choosing for anyone. We were choosing for everyone. And I noticed that it was such a different experience in the heart with this. Not that subtle contraction of something being mine, something being for me. There was really an openness and a spaciousness. There wasn't any contraction, no clinging in the choosing, and it made it a lot more fun. So the small things, the small things at first, that we think are ours, and working up to giving up and letting go of, relinquishing the stickier thoughts of self, beginning to relinquish the identification maybe with some of the qualities that we're I, excuse me, identified with as who we think we are, our personality. It's the thought of these being who I am that we relinquish. The clinging thought of these being who I am that we give up, that we let go. Beginning with small aspects of our personality, qualities of seeming minor importance. And very slowly through our practice, working up to letting go of uh, identification, practicing detachment in relationship to those emotions and aversions that, and I said emotions and aversions, important, that we may regard as the center of our being. Ajahn Sumedho, the former abbot of the Amaravati Monastery in England, shares a, a wonderful way of practicing with this. When a particular habitual tendency of his shows up, and in this case uh, he's talking about the critical mind, he says, oh, there's my personality. Can our personality be impersonal? Can we relinquish our Identity with this or that being who I am, being me. Even including positive emotions and specific gifts that we might regard, uh, be identified with as the center of our being. To whatever degree we abandon, we relinquish thoughts of me, of mine, of I am, to whatever degree we forsake thoughts of self, equanimity will enter our heart. When we realize, when we really, truly come to know anything as void of a self, in those moments, how could it cause us any agitation due to lust or hatred or fear or grief? Consequently, the teaching and practice of anatta is an important guide along the path towards perfect equanimity, our guide along the path to liberation. Equanimity, the unshakable balance of mind and heart, is rooted in understanding rooted in insight. The first understanding, the first being that of kama, and the second being anatta. And there's lots more along the way coming up to uh, a very uh, developed and mature uh, equanimity. The heart the mind of specific neutrality, the heart, the mind of equanimity, isn't cold or heartless or dull. It doesn't manifest out of an emotional emptiness, but, of a, but out of a fullness and, or we could say, completeness of connection and understanding.
At some point in our practice, equanimity will evolve from being relative equanimity to absolute equanimity. In the progress of insight, when equanimity is strong and fulfilled and mature, concentration and understanding occur coupled together without either one exceeding the other, along with an imbalance with all of the other factors of enlightenment. With all of these occurring at that point with what has been called a single taste, the single taste of liberation, of awakening, liberation from the kilesas, the cankers, deliverance from suffering. At that point, there is a very clear insight knowledge into the dangers of the afflictive emotions, the dangers of the defilements, and insight knowledge into the advantages of purification. Insight, understanding at this point, produces what the Buddha called a satisfiedness, a purifiedness, and a clarifiedness within one, which is manifesting due to one's capacity for on-looking equanimity. And the Buddha spoke about this as absolute equanimity, or unworldly, or holy equanimity. And words from the Buddha. Just as all the streams of the world enter the great ocean, and all the waters of the sky rain into it, but not increase or decrease of the great ocean is to be seen, such is the nature of holy equanimity. And so we practice here in retreat and at home in the midst of our daily lives. And we practice with with sincerity and with diligence. We sit with a growing understanding and the blossoming of insight. As awakening beings, we practice with aspiration and determination. And because of all this, it's inevitable that mindfulness, concentration, and all of the wholesome factors of mind and heart, as well as the liberating insights, will sprout, will blossom, and will eventually mature within us. It's our kama, we could say. As an aid, as a nutriment for the arising and the development of equanimity, the Buddha and the commentaries offer us some very specific directions. And this is from the Buddha. We're told to listen to, approach, attend to, to recollect, and go forth after monks, nuns, and laypersons who are accomplished in virtue, sila, concentration, insight, and who have the knowledge and vision of liberation. It's said that hearing the Dhamma from such people is helpful. We're told to dwell mindfully and to investigate states, and that if we investigate with care and with wisdom, our energy will be aroused without slacking. And when this happens, a spiritual joy is aroused and developed. And when one's mind and heart is uplifted with spiritual joy, the body will become tranquil. And when the body is tranquil, one's mind becomes tranquil. We're told that for one whose body is tranquil and who is quietly happy in heart and mind, the mind is easily concentrated. And that when concentration develops and deepens, one looks on with equanimity at the mind that is concentrated. And the commentaries tell us that there are some particular conditions in the whole of our life that will help towards the arising and the development of equanimity. And there's a list of five. Developing and maintaining neutrality toward living beings. Developing and maintaining neutrality towards inanimate objects. 
not spending a lot of time with possessive people, associating with people who maintain neutrality towards beings and inanimate objects. And lastly, to make a resolve to incline the mind, incline the heart towards the arising development, fulfillment, and perfection of equanimity. As we practice, we come to know when equanimity is in us. We come to know when it's absent. And we come to know how it arises and how its development comes about. And closing the talk this evening with two short pieces from the Udana. The Udana uh, are the inspired utterances of the Buddha. And the first piece. Whose mind stands like a mountain, steady, is not perturbed, unattached to things that arouse attachment, unangered by things that provoke anger. When his or her mind is cultivated thus, how can suffering come to her or him? And the second piece from the Udana. For one who clings, motion exists, meaning the movement of the mind. For one who clings, motion exists. But for one who clings not, there's no motion. Where no motion is, there is stillness. Where stillness is, there's no craving. Where no craving is, there is neither coming nor going. Where no coming nor going is, there is neither arising nor passing away. Where neither arising nor passing away is, there is neither this world nor a world beyond, nor any place betwixt the two. This, in truth, is the end of suffering. And let's sit quietly for uh, just a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.